welcome back to the program. Back in the days of the former Soviet Union, we used to look to any public clue to try and understand what went on behind those Kremlin walls. It gave rise to a whole group of people who were referred to as Kremlinologists. Today, it seems we look at the Supreme Court in very much the same way. At a time when the other branches of government talk about transparency and are exposed by leaks, we often know too much about members of Congress and the White House. The court still often remains that enigma wrapped in a mystery. To help us shed some light on the current court and better understand its politics and law, I'm joined by my guest Mark Tushnet. He is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. He's the author of the previous book, A Court Divided, and it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Tushnet here to talk about his latest work, In the Balance, Law and Politics on the Roberts Court. Mark Tushnet, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A delight to have you here. One of the things that I think is surprising about the court, and you talk a little bit about this, is that we think of it often as older justices, and we think about justices that have been on the court for really protracted periods of time, and in fact a significant number, almost half the court, has really been there for only seven or eight years. Talk a little about that. Uh, Well, that's right. This is a court that has a significant number of relatively younger people, which means that they're going to be on the court for quite a long time uh, and working together. Uh, uh, I guess it, it, I'd have to have the numbers right at hand, but I guess there are five relatively older judges and four relatively young judges. Um, some of the older ones are going to leave the court within the next several years, and then we'll have a court that will be in place for decades. And one of the things that that you talk about with respect to this court is the degree to which it is insulated in some respects in the legal world, that it is rare that the court doesn't have anyone on it that comes from a more political background, even though the court is so seemingly embroiled in politics today. Uh, We seem to have developed a uh, norm in politics that uh, people who are nominated to the Supreme Court have to have a substantial or quite large uh, judges, or in the case of Justice Kagan, at least, uh, work as the Solicitor General, uh, which is a quasi-judge-like position. Um, that's that's relatively new. Uh, I think this is well. This is the first time in a long time uh, that there's not a justice on the court who ever had to face a voter in an election. Uh, Justice O'Connor left the court now several years ago. Um, We used to have former governors, former attorneys general, uh, former senators on the court, uh, and that was on the whole uh, useful, beneficial to the court and to the Constitution, precisely because uh, much of what the court does is closely bound up with uh, daily operations. As an example, earlier, uh, I guess last week, the court heard a case on campaign finance, uh, and the question from the court uh, made it clear that they basically either were clueless or were pretending that they didn't know uh, how politicians actually respond to campaign contributions. And it's ironic, I suppose, that as the the confirmation process and as the court in general has gotten more political in some respects and certainly maybe more caught up in politics, that there is less political understanding within the court. Uh, well, I think there's a relationship between those two things. Uh, uh, the court has gotten, in some sense, more political 
it, it, the comparison is, is tricky. They, the justices, particularly coming under Republican nominee, nominations, uh, come with a fair amount of, call it political screening for reliability on their uh, positions. Uh, so the politicians in the, in the president's office and in the Senate actually are uh, injecting a certain kind of politics into the court. It's just not uh, political experience and, and experience with the way in which uh, constitutional law actually plays itself out uh, on the ground in, in real people's lives. Which is another interesting thing about the selection process and the confirmation process, that while there is, particularly as you say on, on the conservative side, more of a litmus test, more of a desire for reliability. The process, by its very nature, is bringing in people whose records have a little more stealth to them than perhaps in previous times. Uh, my own sense is that the period of stealth nominees is probably over. Uh, now everybody is um, interested in what I've called reliability, again, particularly on the Republican side, uh, the best example of that is Harriet Myers, who, wh- whose nomination was uh, derailed because social conservatives uh, mistakenly thought uh, that she wouldn't be reliable on the issues they, they cared about. They didn't have enough information about her to make a good judgment or not willing to trust the president's judgment on it. Uh, my guess is that... Uh, track records now are going to be substantial enough that uh, the stealth nominee is uh, a thing of the past. Talk a little bit about this sense of, of meritocracy on the court, and that we have justices almost exclusively, I think, who have attended one of the two or three top law schools in the country. That's also something that's relatively recent. Uh, that's an interesting uh, phenomenon, and, and it's hard for me exactly to get a handle on it. Uh, I've taught at law schools at various places around the country, all reasonably elite, but I, I've known, been in contact with students at law schools of all sorts. And it's clear that the very best students at any law school are fully qualified for high judicial positions, uh, including the Supreme Court. So we don't have to have justices who come only from the most elite schools. On the other hand, uh, I say this with some ambivalence because of where I teach, one of the things that's happened over the years is that barriers, discriminatory barriers to attending the elite schools have fallen, and they have become what they pretended to be for uh, many years, real meritocracies. And so... If you are looking for really highly qualified people and you don't want to spend a lot of effort on checking out whether to take Harriet Myers again, as an example. well, I'm not sure. It's, uh, one of the potential Bush nominees went to Baylor Law School. You don't want to take the time to check out how good Baylor Law School is. It's just easier to look at graduates of Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. So the meritocracy point sort of cuts uh, in favor of the current practice, even though it scales back a certain kind of experience that, that people can have by attending 
local and regional law schools of, of high quality. There's a certain safety in those picks, and, and really that also goes to the heart of, of how controversial every nominee becomes, what a lightning rod they become. That's one less thing that, that has to be debated in terms of, of competence or qualifications. It just takes that off the table. Uh, right. Uh, uh, there's going to be controversy over nominees these days, right. pretty much, no matter what. Um, uh, one thing you can do to uh, to deal with that is to try to cut away things that could attract criticism. So you go to people, you select people only who've gone to the most elite universities so that people don't sneer at, uh, erroneously in my view, but sneer at somebody who graduated merely from Baylor University Law School. Uh, you find somebody who has published some articles on constitutional issues uh, that aren't terribly controversial so that you can cut away the criticism that this person has no experience in the issues that the court uh, deals with. Um, and, and, and that's not going to eliminate the controversy, but it will confine it or it may transform it into one that is a controversy that's explicitly about the political dimension of the nomination process and presidents probably can win that. I want to come back to, to the political dimensions of this that we were talking about because there there is an interesting aspect to it in that we talk on the one hand about real-world political experience, the kind that Chief Justice Warren had, the kind that Sandra Day O'Connor had, both of whom held elective office. And yet, it's interesting to square that with Chief Justice Roberts' comments in his confirmation hearing where he talked about the role of the justice as simply being an umpire, calling the balls and strikes. Well, the Chief Justice clearly overstated the sort of mechanical nature or lack of judgment, absence of judgment in calling balls and strikes. Uh, And he's indicated that he may have overstated it. Uh, in his nomination hearings, he sort of regrets having used the metaphor <laughs> as strongly as he did. Um, uh, and, and it's clearly on most of the issues that the court, most of the central issues that the court deals with, it's clearly wrong. Um, we care about uh, Supreme Court justices because we know that the issues that they're getting are complicated, controversial, and politically um, bound up in politics. And what we want are people who will make good judgments about those uh, complicated issues. Those judgments are not going to be just checking on whether the pitch was inside the strike zone or outside the strike zone. Um, They will involve judgments about the kind of government we want to have and the role of the Supreme Court in that government and, and things like that where... Politics in a large sense, a vision of the kind of government we want, really does and should come into play. It's interesting that the president, when when he was a senator voting against the Roberts nomination, said something similar in talking about how 95% of the cases would be decided similarly by any justice. Uh, well, there's something to that. I, uh, my own view is that the 95% number is overstated. It's probably more like 80%. Uh, a fair number of what the, uh, of the cases the court deals with do involve technical issues of statutory interpretation, 
uh, in you know complicated statutes where if you dig really deeply, you can invent some notion that politics are at play. But basically, these are questions about uh, the court heard a case yesterday. When does a person who uh, complains about a decision by a pension administrator have to file a lawsuit, this timing of the lawsuit? Um, that's not a terribly uh, political question. And, and a good chunk of the court's cases are like that. Uh, the justices still will disagree about the resolution of the technical issue, but they're not the hot-button issues. The 5% that he referred to or the 20% that I would think is probably the better number are the cases that the public pays attention to and cares about, and those are the cases where the justices really do deploy this larger idea of politics in their decision-making. Even in those other 80% of the cases, are there still situations where, where pretty much those things line up along ideological lines? Well, sometimes. Uh, so in the case, the pension case I just described, there are people who are going to be uh, on the court who will have a sense that one decision is going to be pro-employer and another decision is going to be pro-employee. Uh, and they may have a, a sort of vague sense that on the whole, they prefer decisions that come out in favor of employees or employers. But so they'll go into the case with this sort of mild predisposition or sense of the right way to resolve it. Uh, but then they'll they'll work with the legal materials, see what the statute says, see what the other cases say, um, and and they may and and in many instances do decide that their initial inclination was mistaken, or that the case is close enough that if they're outvoted they won't write up an impassioned dissent. So you will end up with uh, decisions that. You know, on a court that's divided five to four between conservatives and liberals, uh, end up seven to two or eight to one or even unanimous. Those are the things that the president was referring to as the cases that every judge will come to the same result on. The, the corollary of that is something that, that you talk about is that sometimes we forget that these nine members of the court are nine people, nine individuals, and bring to it an awful lot of personal baggage as well as just ideological baggage. Uh, the court is a very small institution of nine people who have to interact with each other uh, on an essentially daily basis, except for the summer break, uh, uh, for a long period of time. Uh, and that means they, ha they are, as they always put it, something like a family. Uh, that doesn't mean they're friendly with each other all the time <laughs> on every question, in every family, there are tensions that sometimes surface, uh, but they do have to get along. Uh, and and on the whole, these are mature, you know, sensible people who know how to get along with people that they disagree with. Uh, at the same time, uh, this sort of social environment means that there re are real opportunities for um, particular leaders to emerge. Uh, and I suggest in the book that for the uh, conservatives, Chief Justice Roberts is already the leader uh, of their their group, 
and that Justice Kagan is likely to be, if she isn't already, the sort of social glue that holds the liberals together. To what extent is this Roberts Court, divided as it may be, different from the Rehnquist Court? Um, I think that current court's divisions may be a little sharper than in the Rehnquist Court. I think that's probably because of changes in the uh, political system elsewhere. Even during the Rehnquist Court period, there were uh, uh, significant numbers of moderate Republicans. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter were of that sort. Uh, today, uh, Republicans are not like that. They're much more ideologically coherent. Uh, I quote in the book um, a statement that Jeff Tubin reported uh, that Justice O'Connor was said to have made to Justice Souter after they had both left the court, that she was dismayed at what the court was doing, what Republicans were doing, because, as she put it, it's our party that's doing it. And what that signals is that the Republican Party that she came from is different from the Republican Party that she was observing in 2010 or whenever. Um, this difference in the party system, I think, is getting reflected on the court. Uh, and so there is more polarization and more uh, heightened rhetoric uh, on the court, uh, just as there is in politics elsewhere. Is that mitigated at all by the lack of diversity, really, among the justices, which we alluded to before, having attended top law schools, having a very strong East Coast bias, certainly uh, lack of religious diversity? Does that mitigate against the political divides in any way? Um, actually, I think it might uh, um, enhance them, uh, because they're all sort of the same kind of people on mm-hmm. other levels, you know, upper middle class, highly educated at elite schools with similar kinds of cultural backgrounds, except for Justice Thomas and Sotomayor, uh, and even they were socialized into becoming upper middle class people, uh, so that the only thing that they have to talk about is politics or their visions of the government as a whole. Um, so I think actually the, the uh, and they, they can't sort of teach each other about what life is like in a different, um, in a different setting because they actually don't have that experience. Finally, talk about it with respect to, to almost the philosophy of politics. You talk about essentially the way Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, think about the Constitution in different ways. Um, the that division has, uh, in some sense, been with us from the beginning, but is stronger now, uh, I think, than it was for for a while. Uh, conservatives are uh, think that the national government should be uh, limited by the Constitution to a relatively discrete number of important issues. Uh, liberals think that the national government exists so as to solve that, so that we can solve politically. Uh, problems on the national scale. Um, so Republicans or Republican appointees are sort of skeptical about environmental law. Democratic appointees are more uh, sympathetic to it. Uh, and and then there's this sort of curious, I don't know what the right word is, reversal with respect to individual rights. Um, Republican nominees, conservatives, 
think that the the government can get too big and can can violate rights, uh, as in the gun rights area. But the rights that they are interested in are sort of libertarian kinds of rights, rights of uh, of living your life the way you want. But also they're infected by they're affected by uh, social conservatism, which which means that you know uh, they're worried about the right to life of a fetus. Uh, liberals are oddly suspicious of the very government that they think should be quite powerful. And so they are alert to intrusions on other kinds of individual rights, rights of autonomy, rights in the criminal procedure process, and the like. And how does originalism fit into that equation? Uh, so over the past, uh, conservatives sort of glommed onto the idea of original understanding interpretation of the Constitution it began as a way of criticizing the Warren Court's liberalism, and then it sort of morphed into uh, an independent commitment among conservatives. Uh, then as conservatives, in particular conservative legal scholars, tried to work it out, work out the idea of originalism, it seems so complicated that it no longer really is motivating, no, really, no longer really does any work. Um, in some sense, there are people who say, uh, that, including liberals, that we are all originalists now, and so being originalist doesn't tell you anything about what the Constitution means. I think that's basically right. It's now just a label for an attitude of uh, conservatism rather than a coherent approach to constitutional interpretation. Mark Tushnet, the book is In the Balance, Law and Politics on the Roberts Court. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.